we're going to start this new series through the Gospel of Mark. And I entitled this series, Leaving a Mark. And part of the reason why I did that is because on the one, ha on the one hand, I, I really believe that we're all living here, trying to leave our mark in this world. Our sense of accomplishment, our sense of worthiness, that we're somebody, we're someone. And on the other hand, leaving a mark can also mean wounds that we're trying to leave behind, scars that we have. And no one else knows this better than the gospel writer Mark, because he himself knows what it's like to fail. He himself what it knows what it's like to leave behind his own marks. And the answer to our human dilemma here is that Jesus meets the mark. He's exactly what we're looking for. And what the Gospel of Mark does is it shows us the life of Jesus and why that transforms our lives now to make a mark and impression on our hearts. And so today we're going to dive into the first opening lines here from Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. But before we get into that, I want to read uh, Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 to give us a little context of what it is that we're reading here. And so we'll flip on over to Exodus chapter 23 through 20, or verse 20. Here's how it reads for us today. These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And then flipping over to Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare, prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you join your hearts with mine in a word of prayer? Father God, we ask you that during this time, would our reflection and the meditations of our hearts and minds be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Holy Spirit, help us to see the things that Jesus, you want us to see. And so we draw near to, as we draw near to you, would you draw near to us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share this song with you that's, that I've been listening to. And the lyrics go something like this. Oh, I want to come near and give you every part of me. But there's blood on my hands and my lips aren't clean. In my darkness, I remember mama's words occur to me. Surrender to the good Lord and he'll wipe your slate clean. And then this is the chorus. I'm going to sing it, not because I have a good voice, but just bear with me here. I feel like it should be sung. 
Take me to your river. I want to go. Oh, take me to your river. I want to know. Leon Bridges, he wrote this song. And his inspiration came from an old spiritual called Down by the River to Pray. In the midst of literal shackles of oppression, they would sing this song and it would give rise to hope. That there is a heavenly river to wash away everything bad. Take me to your river. I want to know. Because I want to know. I want to know what it's like to live in a world where we no longer have to worry about things of shootings occurring in places like Half Moon Bay and Monterey Park. I want to know what it's like to no longer have to worry about aging parents. I want to know what it's like to tell my friend who's dealing with cancer that he's going to be okay. I want to know what it's like to wake up no longer tired and exhausted. I just want to know. And I'm willing to bet you do too. That everyone in this room, we all need some form of hope to just make it through the next day. The question I really present to you and have for you is where is your hope? Where does it come from? What the gospel writer Mark does is that he opens up this compelling vision of hope according to God. And this hope, it cannot be tampered with. It's not something that will fail. It's not even something that we can fail out of because it's childproof. He guarantees this hope for us. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this introduction, Marx wants us to consider three things about the hope that God actually gives. First, there's a reminder. Second, there's a call to re-examine. And third, there's a renewal. Reminder, re-examine, and renewal. Let's look at the first part here, reminder. The book of Malachi is the last prophetic word that God speaks to his own people, and it takes roughly 400 years later before the Gospel of Mark is actually written. That's 1.5 million days of silence. I'll tell you what, if my only two options in a relationship is either to constantly be in an argument or to get the silent treatment, I choose option one all the time. Because at least there's some form of communication. At least there's some form of passion being expressed. At least there is someone to actually argue with. But the silent treatment is like your existence is completely being erased. You don't know what it's about. You don't know when things will get better. You don't know who is at fault. It's just painful. And yet 400 years of silence, God's people endured. And yet out of all the 400 years, God breaks the silence with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what we call a grand entrance. That this very word gospel literally means good news. And it's typically used in warfare when messengers would be sent to send the news of the outcome of battle. And if things went well and the, and the nation was victorious, 
envoys would be sent to send out good news that the king brings victory for his people and therefore everyone is going to be okay. To hear such news is supposed to bring relief. Yet at the same time, I have to imagine there had to be some people thinking, what took you so long? Even now for our vantage point, do we not ask the same questions from time to time? What is taking God so long to fix everything? To fix everything in this world? To fix everything in my life? Doesn't he see the news? Doesn't he know that we struggle? Has he forgotten about us? And Mark probably understood this kind of mindset. And so he takes us down a history lesson. Look at verses 2 to 3. As it is written in the prop, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Notice in verse 2, if you have your ESV translations here, there's a little footnote there in verse 2. And the footnote says that the first half of this quote is from Malachi. How can Mark make this kind of mistake? Because he said this is from the prophet Isaiah. So why is this book of Malachi in there? Why is that passage in there? It's like putting the finishing touches on a novel or an essay or on your resume and you make a, a typo on your name or the title or just the introduction. You would lose all sorts of credibility like that. But when Mark uses Malachi, he does so because it complements the Isaiah passage. And what both passages have in mind is Exodus. See, what Isaiah and Malachi understood is that there is a newer and greater Exodus about to come. That God would send his messenger to let them know it's happening. Yet the people of Isaiah's time were held and shackled in captivity to the Babylonians, still waiting for this second exodus to come. Then you have, centuries later, Malachi's people were, still, were under a Persian rule, sharing the same sort of disappointment. Why is God taking so long? Why is God taking so long? I'm typically a fast walker, probably because my limbs are a little bit longer, but also because I like being efficient with my strides. So going on walks is a little bit of a challenge when I have to walk with my kids. We went for this walk on, this, uh, on the Sabercat Saber Trail nearby. Every minute, the kids would just look at plants or pick up acorns or pick up rocks to collect. So they were just slowing down so much that all the snails were beginning to pass us up. So I just kept walking ahead of them, hoping that the distance would force them to catch up to me. When they realize that I'm not there and they, their heads pop up, they scream, Ah! Appa's gone! And they start hustling towards my direction. I hear my daughter huffing and puffing from behind, and she says out loud, Wait for your children! It was both sad and funny at the same time. Never in a million years would I ever consider leaving my kids behind. And God would never leave us behind. 
we think he's taking too long to fulfill his promises, when in reality, he's probably the one waiting on us. We want God to show up efficiently in our lives, for us to get accepted to best kind of schools, the best kind of jobs, uh, to give us the best kind of prestige, uh, make us have children that grow up properly and successful, at least according to our eyes, get rid of anything that's uncomfortable or sad. We want efficiency. When really God is trying to give us his sufficiency, there's a difference. It's not that God is taking too long as if we are waiting on him. He is waiting on us to understand that his grace is sufficient for us. So now I try to walk a little slower. And every now and then, we need this gentle reminder that God is not forgetful and he hasn't forgotten us. And if this is true for us, there are moments of impatience become opportunities to re-examine ourselves, which brings us to the second point here, re-examine. See, as the people of God long for uh, Isaiah's and Malachi's prophecy to be fulfilled, John the Baptist appears on the scene. And Mark makes this direct connection that John is the very one of the voice crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet who the people of God revered as another Elijah, Elijah type. And John brings to attention that the Savior that we have been all waiting for, he's about to come now. But here's the thing. Verse 6 describes John as, it, as wearing camel's hair and, and wearing a leather belt. And most commentators say that John is mimicking the wardrobe of the prophet Elijah. Elijah. But there is no clear reference whether Elijah actually wore camel's hair specifically, because if anything, camels were considered unclean according to the Jewish law. In other words, John's choice of clothes were peculiar at best. They were strange. It's like showing up to a wedding in jean shorts. Normal people don't do that. And if you have done that, I, I apologize for my statement, but I don't take it back. If you think this to be strange, check out John's diet locusts and wild honey. It's not keto, it's not paleo, it's not vegan, it's just weird. Not exactly the food pairing you expect at the French Laundry. This wasn't the dietary menu specifically for the prophets of the Lord. Mark's description of John highlights what an eccentric and strange figure John the Baptist actually is. Yet here he is, this all-important figure that the people of God have been waiting for. He calls the people to repent, which isn't a popular message, right? He uses an unpopular message of repentance under his locust breath, breath waits in the river with his jean shorts on. Just play along with the analogy here, baptizing people. Now put yourself in the people's sandals would you look at this situation thinking, you know what? This all seems reasonable. It makes sense. I'll repent. Baptize me. Or do you think to yourself, something seems a little off. I'm just going to wait this out and see what happens. 
Yet this, according to the prophet Isaiah, is the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What is straight to God often looks crooked and strange to us, especially with a message like repentance. Why is God calling us to repent? Why can't he just accept me for who I am? And the thing is, repentance is not a matter of agreeing with God or not. A repentance is really about, do you trust God even when his ways don't make sense to you? And do you place his ways, the way of the Lord, above your own ways of doing things? But sometimes we can get set in our own ways. And when you reach a certain age, when you've seen it all, heard it all, done it all, that's when you get set. No need for change. At what age is the cutoff date to be set in your ways? Do you ever wonder, what's the right age for that? When's the cutoff date for that? My father-in-law, he's in his 70s. And periodically he visits us to play with the kids. And when he visits, every time he visits, he tidies up our house and does a little yard work, even when we tell him to relax. My front lawn was infested with weeds. So just imagine Jumanji with a bunch of weeds everywhere. Many times he expressed that we needed to do something about our lawn. One day he took my kids out for a walk in the neighborhood, and as they made their way back home, he paused, looking at all the weeds, and he muttered under his breath, Oh, these these look so ugly. To which Miles responded, Hey, don't call what God created ugly. My father-in-law walked back in the house with a smile on his face, and he tells us, I learned something new today. The weeds were left alone. Perhaps it's not so much our age and experiences that set our ways, but maybe perhaps it's our ways that set our expectations and interpretations. That's truly the issue of what God is, uh, that's truly the issue for us when it comes to what God is doing. John calls for a baptism of repentance. And you notice the location of where he calls them to. Verse 5. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized uh, by him in the, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. See, when God set Israel free from Egypt, he promised to bring them to the promised land. And Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they complained and grumbled, insisting they know a better way. Yet God still waited patiently, walking with them all the way to the Jordan River. And at the Jordan River's edge, there once again God shows up and he parts the water so that the people can safely enter into the promised land. The Jordan River is symbolic of crossing over from death unto life. Israel got in not because they got their act together. They strayed in so many ways. Yet instead, it was the kindness of God that brought them in. What God did at the Jordan back then is the same promise he gives to us now, but on a far greater level. Jesus, repentance is never Jesus standing in our way. Jesus never stands in our way. He shows us that he is the way. 
and is renewing our understanding of what he is actually doing. Which brings us to the last point here. There's a great renewal that he has in mind for us. I find John's sermon in- intriguing here. Look at, verse eight, or look at verse 7 here. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. Basically, all John is saying is, Jesus is greater than I. To which everyone should be able to affirm, we already know, John. Isn't that a given? You wear camel's hair and you eat locusts. The bar has been set low as far as Messiah figures go. But you know what this all sounds like to me? It sounds like New Life Fremont and the pastoral search committee. That when the church was looking for the next pastor, I heard about some of the things that you wanted to see in the next guy. We want someone who could preach well but is an empathetic counselor. counselor. We want someone to inspire but also rigorously discipline. Someone who's culturally savvy but also scholarly. A visionary but also an administrative genius. Passionate but gentle. A people person but not a people pleaser. A financial investor but also knows how to have fun. Generous but frugal. Good with kids, good with adults, good with culture, good with pets. Yes, that's the pastor we want. Well, I have bad news. I'm not that guy. But I also have really good news. The guy that you're looking for, he sounds like Jesus. Who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. To which everyone in this room should be able to say, we know. I believe John practices this way, uh, uh, preaches this way, is because he knew the nature of people's hearts for settling for what's less when God wants to give so much more. The tendency is to turn good things into ultimate things rather than looking at the good things to turn towards the ultimate creator God. When I heard the news that Anthony Bourdain, the iconic American chef, a while back, decided to end his life on his own terms, I was shook. He was someone who I felt like really had it all. He traveled the whole world to look at these beautiful landscapes. He ate delicious meals at Michelin star restaurants. He met all types of people from celebrities to presidents uh, to the average normal person on the street. He made these meaningful connections. He was all about uh, people's humanity and causes. I felt like he was just a good person, even though I didn't know him. With all that he had, it wasn't enough. And the thing is, you and I may not be Anthony or Bourdain, but we know what it's like to feel like how he felt, like nothing's enough. That if our hearts are set on wanting more in this life and you get the more, more status, more wealth, more comforts, and it still feels like it's not enough, then maybe it's the indication that we have an eternal longing for an eternal world that only an eternal God can actually provide for us.
John baptized with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I believe there's this connection with verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, because it echoes the very beginning of Genesis 1-1, where the opening words are, in the beginning, God created. And shortly after that, you read, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Mark is using creation language. Only this time, there is a great renewal of Jesus recreating and restoring broken people in a broken world. Down by the Jordan River points to a heavenly river where Revelations 22.1 picks up on and says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, where, all, where, 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 you, all, where you will find healing for your souls. To know what it's like to have no wounds, no trauma, to know what it's like to simply be a child with nothing to prove, but sitting on the lap of Jesus. No more longing for more, because we finally realize Jesus is enough. And Jesus promises to take us to this river. See, we're all intent on trying to leave a mark, but Jesus is more intent on leaving a mark on us. He's promising us, I'll take you to this river. You just have to know the way. But how can we know the way when our, when, we are, when our hearts are prone to stray? We take twists, we take turns, we take shortcuts in our crooked ways of trying to live without God. Yet God makes his way towards us. Jesus came into the world saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. At the cross, Jesus' body became crooked, also that he can make straight our way to this river of life. Oh, take me to your river. I want to go. Oh, take me to your river. I want to know. Friends, we're reminded today, Jesus knows. He knows you. And he'll take you, to, take you to this river. It's the hope that he sets before us. May you know it dearly in your hearts. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we're just looking for a little bit of hope every day. No matter how small or how big. Our lives are complicated. It's complex a lot of times it just gets overwhelming. But Lord, you know our struggle and you have not forgotten us. Thank you for the precious gift of your words to remind us over and over again. You're a God who truly is with us. You're a God who walks with us. And so Jesus, teach us what it really means to live this life by faith as we simply take it day by day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.